Alert Medic 1 responds. Box area 19 dash. You're listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the Alert Medic One podcast. It is your host. It's Ken Sanner. Hey, guys. It's Moose. David Vitberg. And our special guest... Regular guest. Hey, regular guest. Hey, how's it? Yeah, it's been pretty regular. It's uh, Brian Spoolhoff. Welcome back, everybody, for part three of our traumatic brain injury series. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of good stuff today. Um, you know, tie up a few loose ends that we didn't quite get to over the past two episodes. And I think we're going to start it off jumping right into it, talking about seizure management in TBI, because that's definitely a major consideration, especially in our more serious TBI. So, you know, I'm going to kick it right over to Brian and uh, just talk about a little bit about the incidence of seizure and why it's so important to manage them aggressively. Yeah, th- uh, very, thank you very much. So seizures are, this is probably my mo- most interesting or what I think is the most interesting area with traumatic brain injury. Um, so seizures uh, happen frequently um, within uh, patients with severe traumatic brain injury, anywhere from 4 to 5%, depending on what the uh, injury is, all the way up to 20 25%, um, depending on how severe that injury is. Uh, and the way uh, seizures or we think about seizures in traumatic brain injury is to actually evaluate um, um, early versus late uh, seizures. So early seizures are those seizures that happened within the first 24 hours or sorry, in the first seven days. And then after that, um, late seizures are anything after seven days. So our goal for managing these patients is if they have a high enough risk, which we can talk about in a second, is to um, prophylactically give them anti-epileptics to try to prevent seizures. And Brian, uh, seizures aren't just something we might see in the first few days, uh, as you alluded to. They can be after the first seven days, uh, but this can be a chronic problem for patients with significant TBI as well, correct? Yeah, so that's something that gets into uh, what we would call post-traumatic epilepsy. Um, and what w- our goal in trying to um, treat patients is hopefully prevent some of the early seizures because early seizures can lead to long-term epilepsy. I think we should back up and uh, speak to our audience of hopefully a lot of EMS providers and talk about uh, just briefly the importance of um, stopping seizure activity as early, as quickly as possible in the field. Um, it, it kind of aligns up with, uh, with what Brian was saying is the earlier you stop seizure activity, uh, the less likely you are to see seizure activity downstream. Coupled with that, uh, the traumatically brain injured patient that has even one episode of hypoxemia has an about 150% increased mortality rate in the field. So um, practically speaking, a lot of our patients that are seizing or obstructing their airway, they're becoming hypoxic. So the, the reason to abort seizures quickly in the field is twofold. One, to stop the seizure and prevent subsequent seizures. And uh, two, uh, as part of the global treatment for uh, things that could potentially lead to hypoxemia and increased mortality. And Dr. Or, uh, yeah, Dr. Vitberg, in addition to that, uh, the... 
sorry. In addition to that, uh, the incidence of a seizure, uh, a seizure is going to cause increased intracranial pressure as well, won't it? So yes. we're, we're really looking yeah. at a, a, a multifold issue of why these are such terrible events. And just for uh, both Brian and Dr. Vipberg, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, if you have a patient who has TBI and they suffer a seizure and you fail to treat it appropriately, they actually have an increased risk of further seizures, even uh, these post-traumatic seizures. Is that what I'm understanding? In, in a very, very broad sense, the longer you take to control seizure activity, the more likely the patient is to continue seizing. Mm -hmm. The longer the patient continues to seize, the more issues, issues they'll have with ICP, with protecting their airway if it's not already secured. So it behooves us in the EMS realm to you know go through your primary survey, go through your secondary survey, mitigate immediate life threats. Uh, but if you do have a patient with a mechanism and a traumatic brain injury suspected and they're seizing, uh, even if they're just a medical patient having seizure activity, uh, the sooner we can abort the seizure activity, generally the better patients do, which is why a lot of the medications we use uh, can be given IM very rapidly. Um, I'm going to pull up as we continue to talk. There's actually a, a couple studies that show the benefit of very early seizure, uh, stopping, I was going to say, very se early seizure abortion, but that may <laughs> <laughs> lead to a couple. Uh, termination. Post. Yeah. <laughs> early seizure termination <laughs> is the way to go. Uh, so quick question on that. Um, do you consider treating seizures within the primary, like, you know, you're supposed to mitigate life threats before you do that. Do you consider that or no? No, I mean, I, I okay. don't think the national registry would either. I think if, yeah, uh, yeah. if their arm is blown off by an uh, IED, you put a proximal tourniquet on and you mm -hmm. tie it tight, uh, you know, X, uh, exsanguinating hemorrhage, mm -hmm. um, uh, then work down your ABCs. Uh, and then hopefully you have enough hands on deck for somebody to be drawing up medication, uh, to give as you're getting vital signs. And, um, I, I would not put, uh, termination of seizures in the primary survey, but it's something cool. that if you have enough hands, somebody should be working on simultaneously. Yeah. And, and just w one other thing to consider, um, somebody who's actively seizing, it's hard to get a accurate mental status and neurologic exam on those patients. Um, so one of the other considerations of one of the benefits for us to uh, prophylactically prevent seizures, um, is to actually help us with ongoing neuro exams in the neuro ICU, because if people are fluctuating, that may lead to unnecessary treatment. That makes sense. Although, you know, kind of play devil's advocate there. I would also argue that if I give somebody five milligrams of Versed, I'm probably not going to get a accurate mental status after that either. Just oh, absolutely. So the, the agents, actually, this is a good segue. The agents that we use to prophylactically um, prevent seizures um, is there's two common ones that you'll see. So there's phenytoin and levetiracetam. Uh, both of those shouldn't cause altered mental status uh, and allows us to prevent seizures from continuing. Okay. Brian, how do those work? Like, what, what, like what's their mechanism? Uh, excellent question. So we'll start with phenytoin because that's a little bit easier. So sodium, uh, phenytoin is a sodium channel blocker. Interestingly enough, phenytoin back in the day was also used as an alternative to lidocaine for an antiarrhythmic uh, because it works actually in the same pathway. Um, uh, but... Go ahead. No, and what I was going to say is I think eventually we need to do a, a neurophysiology series where we dive into everything from, like, basic neuron physiology to how, like, you know, action potentials and stuff work. Because people may not have that physiology background. But, yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no worries. Uh, so phenytoin as a sodium channel blocker helps actually decrease uh, the rate of action potential, which would decrease this. It would kind of slow the neurons from firing in the brain, and then that prevents seizures. Um, 
the alternative would be something like levetiracetam or Keppra. Um, that is also a sodium channel blocker, um, but it also has some other mechanisms um, that aren't well understood that we believe affect uh, seizure activity. Um, what you'll find, uh, one of the things that uh, we use to guide which agent to use is the Brain Trauma Foundation Guidelines. Uh, what that does is it tells us how to manage these patients. And right now, um, these guidelines that were published a few years ago recommend phenytoin over levetiracetam based on limited data. But that being said, I find that most clinicians, um, based on some smaller trials, prefer to use uh, levetiracetam mo mostly because of the safety profile. Just backing up a sec, if anybody wants to do some uh, side reading, the trial I was referring to before that I couldn't pull out of the top of my head was the Rampart study. And it looked oh, like yes. it looked at the um, it was cool it was a, a randomized control study that compared uh, EMS's uh, arrival to patients that were seizing uh, IM injection uh, of uh, lorazepam or, or IM injection of midazolam compared to securing an IV and giving IV lorazepam. So basically two benzos. Um, and it was found that if you gave the IM injection quickly, as soon as you arrived versus taking a little bit longer, which it will, in, particularly in children that are seizing, and give an IV dose of a benzo, that the group that got an IM injection was much more likely to be not seizing or have cessation of seizures by the time they arrived in the ED. That's one of a few studies that actually just has pointed to the benefit of early benzodiazepine administration in the field uh, for cessation of seizure activity. And, and just to, again, to speak a little bit to our audience, typically phenytoin and uh, I can't pronounce the generic, but Keppra uh, is not something you're going to find in the pre-hospital realm unless you're doing skilled uh, critical care interfacility transport. So just kind of a cool little synchronicity with that. Um, we actually talked about that on our Facebook page a little bit the other day. And I actually, uh, w when I first started working at the agency I work at, we were taking part in the Rampart study and I actually got to be a part of that. That was kind of kind of a cool thing, oh, yeah. you know, tie it all back together. Yeah. Um, Brian, could you speak to the kinetics and dynamics of intranasal versus IM injection of benzos? Oh boy. Yeah. Uh, so intranasal versus IM. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I could pull literature directly on that. What I can say is that we do use, um, intranasal as an alternative, um, because it has a rapid onset, especially when you are unable to get IV access. Uh, but I've not actually looked at the data to compare, um, IM versus intranasal. Cause that seems to be a trend in Maryland, I think where, uh, and my volume is super low. Let me turn that up. Uh, so there we go. Um, where, uh, the, the Maryland protocol seems to be pushing a lot of meds to, uh, you know, do IN preferred. And I think Versed's one of those. I know fentanyl is. It's yeah. Uh, Ver Versed yeah. is one that we can give. I don't know if it's been pushed as preferred, but yeah. it's definitely. Yeah. I'll have to check. I know fentanyl is, but yeah. I, and I've always been, that's one of those things where I just don't understand the, the, the mechanism that well of how intranasal can be possibly um, uh, the same as, you know, I am. But mm -hmm. that's also, I never understood why PO Dex works the same, you know, has a similar yeah. dose to uh, IV Dex. Well, but that's a whole other conversation. I, I think we could actually get into that topic and I could do some research. But the, the way intranasal works is two. You, one, you have the mucosal um, uh, I guess absorption and then when you actually breathe it in you can absorb directly from the lungs directly into the bloodstream mm -hmm. um, oh, yeah, okay. but so, i would have to look there's there's some some drugs don't work that well intranasal and i'd have to look into the data behind yeah. that so so there's there tends to be uh, more pediatric studies on uh, uh, cessation of seizures in the field 
2007 pediatric emergency care um, kind of mucosal atomization devices were, were kind of being put out in the field. Uh, midazolam uh, IN was compared to uh, your favorite route, um, PR administration of uh, benzos. <laughs> A uh, study of 57 pediatric patients with status epilepticus compared IN mucosal atomized midazolam to uh, rectal diazepam. Uh, the intranasal group uh, had, uh, looks like their seizures stopped quicker. Uh, they had a shorter pre-hospital seizure duration and were less likely to have a seizure in the ED, undergo ED intubation, uh, receive additional seizure medications for ongoing seizures, uh, be admitted to the hospital or require admission to an ICU. Uh, and then there's a couple other similar studies that followed that supported that, the IN administration of uh, midazolam. But again, this looks like um, uh, most of the studies I'm seeing were in the pediatric population. Cool. Cool. Interesting. I think that was that's uh, we can probably go segue into causes of, or maybe just go into refractory ICP. What do you think? Yeah, that's fine. Um, Unless you guys have anything else. No, on I, I'm pretty yeah. happy with seizures. Brian, there. did you have anything else yeah. on? No, I think we could spend a whole episode just yeah. talking about seizure management outside of TB, uh, TBI and uh, the importance for managing uh, seizures in patients who have epilepsy versus alcohol withdrawal. I think and and, and, and uh, so. Doc, early, so pearls for EMS, early management of seizures, right? D don't forget uh, time-sensitive, life-saving interventions. Uh, go through your... Uh, primary and secondary survey, get a set of vital signs. Uh, but if there are a, additional hands on deck and somebody can be thinking about preparing, drawing up, uh, going through the five rights so you drop the right medication at the right dose for the right patient with the right expiration date, uh, treating the seizure uh, simultaneous to those important things at the top, that would be good. Good stuff. Yeah. I, and so I think uh, as we move into refractory ICP, if people listen to our first episode, that's where we talked about like the mannitol and some other agents uh, on how to treat it. But I think uh, well, we definitely want to, and Brian definitely wanted to talk about that refractory ICP manage, uh, management. So I think we'll give it back to Brian. Oh, great. So uh, just a quick refresher with ICPs and why it's so important as intracranial pressures go up. Uh, your brain has a limited space, or the skull has a limited space. So as you have higher pressures, your brain ends up choking itself off from blood supply. You end up potentially uh, having areas of ischemia and, and worse outcomes. Um, so we, as we talked about, uh, the initial management of ICPs include uh, raising the head of the bed if you can so that you can have blood flow, uh, use gravity to your advantage, using osmotic therapy to help draw out some of that edema from the brain. Um, one of the other things to think about is if all of those have failed, what do you do next? And this is not really well-defined within the literature. And this is because one, uh, there's a rarity, there's a scarcity of the number of cases that have um, refractory uh, TBI or ICPs, but also the outcomes are so poor in those patients that trying to find something that improves that outcome, it becomes very difficult. So there's kind of what I would say, uh, two or three um, uh, key, uh, well, really four that we can talk about, but from a pharmacologic standpoint, a couple that are very uh, important. So the first is a craniectomy. Um, craniectomy is removing a portion of the skull so that you remove some of that the barrier so there's a little bit more room for the brain to grow. And what there is actually a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that's evaluated this. And they found that early decompressive craniotomy did, 
decrease intracranial pressures, but it didn't improve outcomes. It actually led to worse outcomes. And mm. we can talk to why that is in a little bit or why they think that is. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, Dr. Vipberg, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but in terms of a craniectomy, you could actually do that with a yellow IO needle, correct? Oh, and a easy IO oh drill. Oh boy, uh, that, that's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> um, I mean, you could, yeah, you could do that with like a Black & Decker drill. Uh, you could do it with an IO needle. Have you, in all seriousness, have you heard of case reports or providers doing that in no. the middle of Montana on a trail with like uh, the closest rescue being, I guess, you know, no. No, I, mean, I haven't. I mean, I've seen like random Facebook photos. I don't even hear. I think cause... I saw it when my, my ex-girlfriend was big on Grey's Anatomy. I think I saw something similar there. Right. Um, but that's about the closest. I, I can tell you <laughs> when I trained uh, in medical school in Syracuse, um, and it might take a while for a neurosurgeon to get in in the middle of the night, uh, the ER residents there were trained to do burr holes with a drill okay. to evacuate subdural blood. Um, but that was in the ED perfect controlled setting, optimal lighting, sterile drill. I don't know that I've personally ever seen a protocol uh, that utilizes an IO or other type of I don't drill even want to field. get into that. Like yeah. that is I would refer you to your jurisdictional medical director for further guidance on and that. And they'll probably look at you like you have seven. Uh, I was gonna say that might be a really good way to lose your uh, your certification. I mean unless your you're license. the only reason I could ever even remotely think that this is acceptable in like is would be like austere environments or the military when you're stuck on an operation for like months at a time or something and you don't have access to this stuff. But right. Yeah. Sorry, Brian. We didn't mean to go off on a tangent. We digress. <laughs> no, that's, that's okay. Um, I, I would argue that before we people even went down to the uh, down the consideration of decompressive craniotomy or craniectomy, you'd want to know whether the patient actually had refractory intracranial pressures, and you'd need to be able to measure some of that. Some of it you'd only be able to, um, if you don't have the devices available to see that, then I would be very hesitant, but I am certainly not a neurosurgeon. So, so actually in all seriousness, I think we need to back up. We were joking a little bit there. Um, so I, I think it's important for our listeners to understand what a decompressive craniectomy is Typi oh, yeah. typically, I mean, there's a couple different regions of the skull that can be taken off by a neurosurgeon. Um, a decompressive craniectomy may involve kind of making a midline incision, basically peeling back the scalp and um, with a bone saw actually taking off half of the skull. And sometimes the skull is put in preservative, sometimes it's, I believe, implanted in a patient's abdomen to preserve it. Uh, and and the, bo uh, the brain is actually exposed and, and allowed to essentially herniate. And so remember, the, we've said this many times, the skull is a confined, closed space. There's no room for, or not a lot of room uh, for swelling and removing half of the skull allows the brain to swell. Uh, you can continue kind of caring for and resuscitating your patient. And over time, you hope that the, uh, the, the brain kind of contracts. Yeah. Um, there are smaller decompressive craniectomies that we actually do in the community hospital I work in, where we will take off the posterior kind of occipital portion of the skull for people that have um, cerebellar infarcts or cerebellar bleeds. So um, I just want our listeners to know that, you know, drilling a hole through the skull with even a large gauge yellow IO needle uh, probably ain't going to do a whole lot for the subset of patients that we're talking about right now with traumatic brain injury. There are devices uh, that neurosurgeons use in the OR routinely to drill burr holes, but burr holes that go into the skull are, are typically the diameter is a lot bigger than an IO needle. And uh, they're able to introduce suction catheters and suck out usually subdural or epidural blood around the brain and put in drainage catheters. 
Um, I, I'm actually very curious. You made a side comment about the military. I'm actually very curious if we could reach out to any of our military contacts and see if in their operations manuals, uh, the, their PJs or whatever can jump out of helicopters and, and do anything like this. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted our listeners to be clear about what we're talking about when we talk about kind of the drastic measure of doing a decompressive craniectomy. Yeah, and 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 you bring up some good points. And really, the burr holes uh, are used to drain blood and suction out blood versus taking out larger sections of uh, skull, which help allow the brain expand. Because the last thing you want to do is have a small hole and have the brain herniate out, herniate out that small hole. So, um, if if any of our providers have been in the field and seen somebody shot in the head, um, you can pro- you've probably seen what Brian just described because often. Uh, if there is brain matter related to a gunshot wound, it is kind of herniating out through a little yeah. uh, path bullet of least hole. resistance. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, but, but getting back to you, you had mentioned probably one of the first things we should do is determine if our patient has uh, elevated intracranial pressure. And then uh, we should get back to kind of how we work through that. And, and um, what I think we need to do is we need to frame this as far as like, what do we do in the hospital, which is important for our providers to know. Uh, but then what can we, of those things, what can we do in the field? What's translatable into the field? Well, we did yeah. do the, we did do the initial management in, right. our, in okay. our first episode. Yeah, you're right. um, yeah. But uh, I do want to transition to the refractory management because I sure. know you had your notes. Yeah. Well, what I'll say is the one thing for uh, EMS to be aware of, and I think uh, we brought this up in terms of craniectomy, since this is something that typically happens um, after the fact is I certainly have had several patients who've had craniectomies. They don't put the bone flap or the piece of bone back um, from sometimes a couple years. One of the things wow. to keep in mind as an EMS provider is if a patient doesn't have that and they have a subsequent injury, you may actually, uh, you have to be careful in that region because there's no skull to protect that area. Mm-hmm. So that might be something just as a consideration. Um, in terms of refractory, there's a couple other things that we can do. Um, there's from a non-pharmacologic standpoint, also hypothermia. Uh, the data on that is still not great, so we don't do it routinely. Um, hypothermia would be similar to what you would see maybe with a post-cardiac arrest, uh, trying to reduce the body temperature um, and have some neuroprotection. And then the other two uh, agents from a pharmacologic standpoint that we do is neuromuscular blockers and uh, pensobarbital. Uh, neuromuscular blockers work because what ends up happening is if you can cause the body to completely stop moving, stop having any contractions. It reduces the amount of blood flow that gets uh, sent through the brain. It also decreases the amount of cerebral um, metabolic oxygen demand by overall reducing um, uh, any um, kind of contractions in, 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 the, in the body. The other thing is pentobarbital, which probably I think people might be uh, may have seen a little bit more than neuromuscular blocker. And a pentobarbital is similar to any other barbiturate, uh, which are, if you're not familiar with how these work, it's similar to benzodiazepines, but they cause a much more profound suppression of neurofunction. And you can actually put somebody into a full coma with this. And when I say full coma, uh, you actually can get an EEG, which is similar to an EKG. You'll see the, uh, the electrical activity into the brain, and you can flatline somebody's brain activity. Um, and that's what we do with pentobarbital is completely flatline them so that they only have maybe one burst of activity every couple seconds, every six seconds or so. And that causes the brain to require almost zero oxygen. And because it requires zero oxygen or much less, then there's less blood being sent to the brain. And because there's less blood being sent to the brain, there's a little bit more space. Um, so that's probably uh, one of the absolute last line agents 
ultimately, uh, you can't perform neuro exams on these patients because they are in a drug-induced coma. They are completely knocked out. Um, and hopefully, when you as, as you start to take this medication off, the ICPs have started to resolve and the patient comes out of that. Um, but unfortunately, when we do this, it's usually patients that aren't towards the end of life. So what, what I think a, is a really good takeaway point for our providers, field providers that are listening, is that everything Bryant went through, including the presence of like a, a, a PharmD, a clinical pharmacist like Brian, uh, which is important when you go down these pathways and you're putting people into a pentobarbital coma, a lot of these uh, therapies are only done at tertiary care centers, academic uh, university hospitals. And um, so in the field, I think we have to be uh, careful about uh, referring and transporting our sickest traumatic brain injury patients from inception uh, to a regional trauma center uh, that has high, very high neurocritical care capabilities. And uh, so hopefully people uh, understand kind of the CDC triage decision tree that we use, I think across the United States, uh, but also recognize specifically the importance of patients with traumatic brain injury uh, being expeditiously transported to a trauma center with neurosurgeons, with neurocritical care capabilities that can run down this algorithm that can get pretty complicated uh, in an effort to give our patients the best outcome. And one thing I will add to, to what Brian said is that, um, you know, locally uh, where I work, uh, we're close to the University of Maryland and shock trauma. Uh, they do a lot of investigational stuff uh, regarding uh, even higher tier therapies for reduction of intracranial pressure. And uh, there's a lot of um, uh, foam lectures and, and other resources on the internet that you can uh, read a little bit more about what I'm going to tell you, but they do uh, decompressive laparotomies. They'll actually open somebody's abdomen uh, to reduce intra-abdominal pressure, which reduces intrathoracic pressure, yeah. which improves venous drainage and return from the brain down towards the heart. And uh, they have a pretty large series of patients that have had pretty positive outcomes that have undergone decompressive laparotomies. And again, for our audience that doesn't know what a laparotomy is, it's basically opening up your abdomen from the subxiphoid space down to the pubic symphysis, allowing the skin and the fascia to remain open. And basically the bowels are covered with a vacuum. Mm -hmm. uh, so like an occlusive dressing attached to a vacuum. And uh, there, there's some very uh, basic and some more advanced physiologic principles that, that, that need to be explained to fully understand how this works. But... Um, th there's, uh, there's stuff above and beyond pentobarbital, which can be done. Uh, but again, uh, typically only done at your tertiary care, uh, high level, uh, trauma centers. And that, that kind of goes back. This is actually something that, uh, Moose and I touched on in a recent pediatric episode we did. I really want us to get together, do an episode, talk about what is definitive care and how important it is for paramedics to understand that because mm -hmm. you definitely have instances, you know, even around the state where, okay, I've got a level three trauma center 20, you know, maybe five minutes away. And even by air, my level one, my primary neuro center, maybe 30, 60, 120 minutes. But where is it? best to deliver that patient you know at what point do we de determine hey maybe we need to take an extra 20 minutes and go to the level one trauma center that has this acute neurocritical care ability you know so um i can't speak for all the states in the union i can speak for where i live and work and breathe medicine and pre-hospital care maryland maryland is becoming increasingly uh regionalized 
and uh, specialized with regard to not every hospital does everything and very specific hospitals do very specific things. And there's a movement in the EMS community here locally to do exactly what you're talking about. And, and the most recent iteration of that was uh, taking a patient with a high LAM score and bringing them to a comprehensive mm -hmm. stroke center where they have neurosurgery, uh, neurointerventional radiology, they could potentially take somebody with a proximal large vessel occlusion and do a mechanical thrombectomy versus you're around the block from a community hospital or a lower level hospital that can still treat stroke and as a primary stroke center and can still give TPA, but taking the extra drive, the 10, the 20 minutes to go to a comprehensive center in a patient you think has a large vessel occlusion. So we are already currently moving in that direction in the state of Maryland. Uh, we, we do have two regional, uh, a couple of regional trauma centers that we preferentially transport our TBI patients to. And I think what you're going to see over time is smarter EMS protocols being developed that speak to taking patients with specific injury patterns to specific centers of excellence, even if it means an extra 10, 20 minute drive or flight. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we were seeing that in Massachusetts as well. Uh, specifically with comprehensive stroke, um, patients had to be diverted to certain uh, centers because certain centers could provide therapy such as that um, thrombectomy. Mm -hmm. So, I do. Uh, I do have a question regarding like so. Uh, once we open up someone's skull, the we are significantly more concerned about infection. So, could you speak a little bit to like maybe the antibiotics that these people will be getting uh, and stuff like that? Oh, this is uh, this is a very controversial topic, actually. Uh, there's, there, I like it. So, right. So, um, what I will say, uh, general, uh, generally, from the antimicrobial stewardship, which is the um, process by which we try to minimize or use the best antimicrobials for the right amount of time, um, versus kind of where neurosurgeons uh, tend to lie. And what I'll say is, uh, with um, putting in. EVDs or uh, extraventricular devices, those are the devices that will go right into the brain, uh, maybe into the uh, ventricle of the brain to help reduce, um, either pull out CSF or reduce some pressure. Uh, typically, all you need is a one-time dose of antibiotic um, prior to placing that to prevent maybe a infection from occurring, but what you don't wanna do is prolong that. Because uh, what we found is that prolonged use of antibiotics for these uh, cases actually increase the risk of multi-drug resistant infections. So for example, what you'll see is maybe cefazolin, um, which is a cephalosporin being used. It helps kill some of the skin bacteria that prevents you from getting the infection. But if that gets continued on, then you end up getting more infections that might be more, um, uh, bugs that aren't killed by cefazolin sometimes like for example MRSA mm -hmm. uh, we might see that more frequently so uh, the answer there is one time dose prior to the surgery maybe one or two doses post but nothing more than that good stuff thank you cool. yeah so I, I think it's uh, is there if we don't have anything I mean I do want to talk about long term rehab a little bit especially the meds that you know our clinicians might see for like the chronic patient they're responding to um, so maybe let's talk on that and then let's talk about like what the ultimate end goal is for the TBI patient, like what the definitive care is. Yeah, we can certainly. Yeah. So for I will be able to speak in terms of the long term rehab and going to rehab centers, because really there that's very specialized care. There's some very smart people in that field. 
who are working to make sure that these patients have as best of a recovery as possible. But to kind of prep patients, there's um, really uh, one big agent that we use. It's called amantadine. Um, amantadine, the interesting thing about this drug is it was originally approved as an anti-influenza drug. And very quickly and rapidly, there was resistance to mancidine, and there became really no use for it. Um, and had a lot of adverse effects, some neuropsychiatric effects. Well, it turns out that those neuropsychiatric effects are really beneficial in patients with traumatic brain injury. Uh, so there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2011 that uh, compared patients getting amantadine versus placebo, studying about four to 16 weeks after the original injury. And what they found were patients who were uh, initiated on amantadine had an accelerated rate of recovery. They were uh, they got to um, the end, uh, their peak uh, recovery faster than those who did not have amantadine. But once the amantadine was stopped, the groups leveled out and there was the exact same end uh, goal in terms of recovery. Uh, so that's while we often will do this because it's really the only agent we have. Um, there's still a lot of controversy of what the long term benefit of amantadine is. Um, there's some other agents that are used that I've seen uh, with very, very limited data based on case reports or theoretical um, modafinil, which is also known as provigil. Uh, this is used and patients who have narcolepsy to keep them awake. Um, sometimes I will use this in patients who are having, who have some recovery, but are often falling asleep during the day, um, are having trouble maintaining consciousness. We've tried that. You can also, people have also tried amphetamine salts or methylphenidate, which are usually used for ADHD. And what's really interesting is um, there's been small case reports of people using Ambien to actually wake people up because it changes the neurochemistry within the brain and it causes people to um, kind of become a little bit more aware when they have traumatic brain injury. Uh, huh. That's based off of a very small trial that had a unremarkable, like a remarkable recovery rate. So um, it's a little sketchy of whether people truly believe that that's always the case. Can you speak at all to what kind of behavioral or psychiatric issues TBI patients sometimes face and are they managed in similar ways to other types of issues? Yeah. So, um, it, you end up running into, uh, kind of a multitude of issues. Um, part of it is due to the, uh, brain injury itself. Part of it is due to long-term, uh, long-term being in the ICU and causing something called ICU delirium. You can have both hypo and hyperactive cases hypoactive being patients who are just uh, not moving or maybe not as aware. And that's where we use some of these uh, stimulant uh, agents. And then there's hyperactive. So those are patients who are delirious, similar to what you might see with um, dementia patients. They may become violent. Um, it, it's not at all. If you have TBI, this is what happens. But certainly we see those cases and they become difficult to manage. We try our best to use antipsychotics, um, use uh, benzos if people are acutely agitated and um, irritated, then they may hurt themselves. But uh, uh, it's a it's a balance and you kind of treat them the same way as you would uh, other patients with um, kind of combative behavior or other issues. 
Yeah, it's definitely, it's interesting. You know, I think one thing that our listeners should take away from this series is that TBI is not a one-size-fits-all thing. The brain is so complex and in a lot of ways still so poorly understood that it's kind of like, you know, almost anything can happen for any patient. You can see so many different presentations. You know, you manage the symptoms the best you can, and uh, that's kind of what it comes down to. So. Yeah. So what is the ultimate goal, the end therapy, the, you know, the end point? What do we want to see for our TBI patients? Well, our long-term goal is full recovery, functional recovery. I think one of the, um, one of the debates that we've had in neurocritical care, and we're starting to see this in critical care and other, um, maybe even emergency medicine, is we've realized that there's more to a recovery than just mortality alone or some of the endpoints that may lead to more, um, mortality, uh, decreases in mortality. So as I mentioned earlier, that craniectomy trial um, in TBI, that found similar rates of mortality. It found a significant decrease in ICP, but no changes in functional outcome, which means patients at the end were just as disabled with or without that um, endpoint. So is that really the best uh, start? Is that the best intervention if it actually doesn't improve outcomes? And worst case scenario, there's some interventions that decrease mortality. And so that would have normally been considered a positive outcome. But what it did was increase uh, the modified Rankin score, which is a score that uh, determines the ability of functional outcome. And so instead of having more people or it's because less people died, there were more people who were uh, in a permanent vegetative state. Yeah. So that actually is a, that's probably a bad intervention. If even though we decrease mortality, if they are more likely to be, uh, have zero function, then is that really what you want in life? It kind of reminds me of the current controversy and study going on with epinephrine and cardiac arrest, where we mm -hmm. know epinephrine increases survival but it also increases poor neurologic outcomes and so I, what I, are we really doing yeah and like this really goes back to like some you know in my career like some of the people that i used to transport a lot because of their illness and some of them were tbi patients they had no quality of life mm -hmm. right and that's and i know that goes into a larger ethics thing and all mm -hmm. that which i know gets thought about at a way higher level by people that do this a lot more but uh just for the average clinician, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you get called at two in the morning for the same super upset family that's taking care of their 20 some year old son who was this, you know, uh, in my experience, you know, in my particular case, this up and coming athlete that had a gross, you know, injury and now is bedridden with a, you know, with a peg tube and a, mm -hmm. and a, and a cath. And I mean, what, what, where, where do we fall ethically? Not, in a, not in the EMS. This is not for changing EMS treatment or anything, but as a part of a larger medical community. Um, Absolutely. You know what I mean? And, and I, I mean, I would even take it to the next level. I had a patient who was, you know, quadriplegic, peg tube, everything, but still mentally aware. Yeah. I don't know if I'd almost rather be the guy in the persistent vegetative state, you know, like that's, mm -hmm. that's just tough to imagine living like that, you know? Um, yeah. You know. Ideally, I'd never be either, but <laughs> yeah, we don't get to pick what life throws at us. So, so. Yeah, I, I think the key is, is even though this isn't something that necessarily um, you would see as a as an EMS provider um, taking in these patients, but the interventions as we start to evaluate what's beneficial, those are the things that uh, as an EMS early uh, intervention, we should look at. Certainly, if it improves mortality, mm -hmm. um, that's great, but what are the outcomes of that? 
and also how critical the interventions that we do end up doing may end up affecting the patient five years from now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a little nerding out just for a sec. Uh, Brian had mentioned the modified ranking score, and this is actually something that I've seen in some progressive EMS protocols. Um, oh. When talking about goals of uh, treatment for TBI, um, there's a very um, industry standard way to uh, gauge a person's functional status uh, after stroke, after TBI, and it is the MRS, the modified ranking score. It's uh, scored zero to six, and I have it up here on the screen, zero being no symptoms at all, six being dead. And the further you go down the scale, the higher the number, the more assistance you get. People with a modified ranking score of zero have no symptoms, and one and two have uh, slight disabilities but can usually perform all activities of daily living. Uh, Three through five, you need assistance, uh, and six is obviously dead. So we we typically shoot for outcomes with a modified ranking of between zero to two. The reason I I bring this up in an EMS podcast is that uh, it's critically important, um, both in TBI patients and stroke patients, for our field providers to convey to the receiving hospital staff some um, gathering of information uh, of what was the patient's baseline Mm -hmm. functional status. Uh, Because a lot of heavy decisions, whether it be the administration of TPA or doing a thrombectomy for an ischemic stroke, uh, the aggressiveness with which we resuscitate a patient uh, with a traumatic brain injury um, is born from what what the patient's baseline MRS was. So you may start to see this in some of your protocols. It appears in some of the EMS research protocols. Uh, If you read any papers on outcomes after brain injury, you're going to hear MRS, modified ranking scale. thought I would just show that to you guys. Okay. Yeah, that's great. And and we're uh, what we used to look at as modified rank and scale as a sole endpoint, we're actually looking at changes for patients who may have already been disabled uh, to begin with, as you mentioned, and if they had an, an improvement. So if they were a three to begin with, if they continue to be a three, then is that a good outcome or not? Mm. Good stuff. Any uh, any any last minute pearls or anything? Well, anything you guys want to talk about? With TBI, anything else? The only thing I wanted to say, and I've been holding this in for like 20 minutes now, when Dr. Vitberg was talking about peeling back the scalp and drilling out the skull, especially with Halloween approaching, the the only thing I can think is that scene from Hannibal where he's like scooping out the guy's brain with a a spoon, you know, (laughs) totally off topic. I was like, I don't want to disrupt the show with this, but since we're coming up on the end. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, but yeah, any any pearls, anything? Um, you know, I, I recently was uh, reading through a, a really good medical blog uh, preparing for this talk. And uh, in, in that blog, they talked about um, the, the issue of traumatic brain injury and coding, uh, running a code basically on a patient's brain. And I think it's just uh, good to review some of the basics. Uh, you know, first tier, uh, when able, is to simply elevate the head of the bed, which we actually don't do a lot in the pre-hospital world for a lot of things, but we're getting there. We're actually now ramping up people's heads to intubate them, imagine that. Um, Elevating the head of a patient with a traumatic brain injury in the field is often gonna be difficult because we're usually going to be immobilizing them. Uh, Maintaining euthermia is often very overlooked in the field um, and and can certainly uh, help uh, with ICP issues. Uh, If you do intubate, all of these patients should have continuous waveform capnography, and we should be targeting a goal uh, and title of about 35 to 38 
Uh, hyperventilation is, is detrimental for many, many, many disease states, also detrimental in a person with traumatic brain injury that is not herniating. So we target an entitled CO2 of 35 to 40. Uh, and then controlling pain and sedating a patient. So if you do intubate a patient or have the opportunity to safely provide analgesia, that can also help with the ICP. Those are kind of your first tier things that uh, most of which can be done in the field. The, the, the next tier are things that are typically done in the emergency room. And we've talked about it over the last three or four episodes, mannitol, hypertonic saline, and sodium bicarb. And then uh, upper kind of level stuff, uh, which we reviewed with Brian today, is uh, administration of uh, deeper sedating agents, uh, propofol, pentobarbital, and then extreme things like a decompressive craniectomy and, and uh, as is done locally, things like a, a decompressive laparotomy. So it, it's always important to understand where we as EMS providers fit into that spectrum. And I think this is a beautiful example of how we are part of the spectrum of resuscitation for traumatic brain injury. If you think for a minute that your actions and, and what you do for a patient in the first 30 to 60 minutes in the field doesn't matter, you're in the wrong profession. Uh, there is no patient population that benefits from excellent pre-hospital care more than the patient with TBI. Brian, uh, any pearls for our uh, EMS folk? No, I think just uh, for TBI you in general. Hit the nail on the head. That sounds great. Good stuff. Okay, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to the Alert Medic One podcast. Please check out our website www.alertmedicone.com. It's got a lot of great articles on it. We try to update it as frequently as possible. We've got a ton of content sitting in the hopper right now that'll be out soon. Check us out on Facebook, Alert Medic One. We have uh, trying to get daily discussions going there. Um, you know, we have some exciting stuff coming up there as well. Twitter, Alert underscore Medic One. And then probably the most important thing you can do if you want to support our show, subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice. Listen to us every time an episode comes out. Uh, leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Let us know what you want to hear. We have a lot of really cool topics coming up. We've, we've really had a, a plethora of good recordings here lately. Um, so I think we're going to be able to deliver a lot of great content to you soon. So please check us out. Let us know what you think. And we will see you next week. Peace. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.